Hello there. Welcome back to The Layman's Historian, Episode 36, Making a Way. Last time, we covered the opening moves of the Second Punic War, with Hannibal marching across Gaul and the Romans trying to intercept him. Today, we will cover what is perhaps Hannibal's most famous feat of all, the crossing of the Alps. No event is more connected to Hannibal's name than the crossing of Western Europe's tallest mountains. If you were to ask the average passerby on the street what they associated most with Hannibal, the most likely responses would be Alps and elephants. Even his later victories in Italy, however brilliant and crushing they may have been, failed to take preeminence over his alpine crossing. The iconic picture of massive tropical elephants struggling knee-deep through narrow passes and pouring snow remains the defining image of Hannibal's life. Yet despite the fame of this episode, no event in Hannibal's career is so controversial. From the hotly contested nature of the route he used through the mountains, to whether we should even admire his alpine crossing at all, historians of all ages, from near contemporaries to modern times, have viewed the Carthaginians traveling over the Alps with reactions ranging from enthusiastic admiration to sneering dismissal. Therefore, we will leave the debates and controversies regarding Hannibal's actual route and the relative merit of the crossing itself to others, since, realistically, we will never know for sure. Instead, we will cover Hannibal's harrowing march as related by the chroniclers. For whatever technicalities might be contested, the fact that Hannibal courted disaster among the Alpine passes and surmounted them by a supreme, heroic effort cannot be doubted. Having received provisions, winter clothing, and guides from a local Gallic leader whom he had helped, Hannibal proceeded to the foothills of the Alps in early October 218 BC. Here, at the base of a mountain range nearly 750 miles long and at its highest point just shy of 15,800 feet, he found the fierce Allobroges, a powerful Gallic tribe, held the initial passes against him. Nature lent her aid to the dismal sight of strong, nimble Gauls springing among the rocks above. Early winter had set in, and with it, the snow. Livy gives a grim picture of the sight which met the Carthaginians at the mountain's foot, a place where reality became more terrible than rumor had ever been. The dreadful vision was now before their eyes. The towering peaks, the snow-clad pinnacles soaring to the sky, the rude huts clinging to the rocks, beasts and cattle shriveled and parched with cold, the people with their wild and ragged hair, all nature, animate and inanimate, stiff with frost. All this, and other sights of horror which words cannot express, gave a fresh edge to their apprehension. Hannibal's Gallic scouts soon reported that there was no way the army could force its way through the pass during the day without risking disaster from the lurking barbarians who could roll boulders and rain missiles down upon the exposed column. However, the scouts also brought a silver lining with this bad news. Similar to the Spaniards at the River Tagus, the Gauls abandoned their positions at nightfall, confident that no army would hazard an arduous ascent in darkness. Hannibal seized his chance. The next day, he employed his men in throwing up vigorous fortifications as if settling in for a siege of the hills, and as dusk fell, he kindled a large amount of campfires to lull the enemy's watch. When his outposts reported that the Gauls had predictably retired to their alpine town for the night, 
Hannibal dispatched a picked group of light infantry to capture the high ground. When dawn broke, the Carthaginians struck camp and began to file into the pass. Alerted to their enemy's movements, the mountaineers appeared to take up their usual positions, only to find that, to their astonishment, Carthaginian assault troops barred their way. Their dismay at this surprise only lasted for a short time, however, for it soon became clear that the Carthaginian column was struggling and climbing the mountain. The road was narrow and steep, and confusion and terror grew among the ranks as the soldiers, camp followers, and pack animals jostled for position or stumbled over rocks. When the Gauls saw the mountain chaos amid the Carthaginian column, they swarmed down the mountain, pelting the soldiers with rocks or rolling boulders upon them, remaining just out of reach of retaliation. It was a case of every man for himself, says Livy, and in their struggles to get clear of danger, they were fighting with each other rather than with the enemy. It was the horses more than anything else which created havoc in the column, terrified by the din, echoing and re-echoing from the hollow cliffs and woods. They were soon out of control, while those which were struck or wounded lashed out in an agony of fear, causing serious losses both of men and gear of all descriptions. In the confusion, many non-combatants and not a few soldiers were flung over the sheer cliffs which bounded each side of the pass and fell to their deaths thousands of feet below. But it was worse for the pack animals. Loads and all, they went tumbling over the edge almost like falling masonry. With the situation rapidly becoming critical, Hannibal recalled his assault troops who had held the high ground and placing himself at their head, charged down upon their Gallic tormentors. Sharp fighting ensued among the clefts and crevices, and both sides suffered heavy losses, but at last the Gauls were driven off. Leaving the column to continue its wearisome ascent, Hannibal launched an attack on the principal native town in the vicinity. Instead of a last stand, however, he found that the natives had abandoned their homes in the wake of his advance, leaving behind most of their possessions. This proved an unexpected boon, as Hannibal was able to recover many prisoners who had been taken, as well as replenish the pack animals and food supplies which had been lost in the climb. After a brief rest, the army set off again. An uneventful march of several days brought them to the lands of another powerful Gallic coalition. Instead of armed resistance, Hannibal found elders from the surrounding villages who promised friendship, supplies, and hostages for the advancing army. Grown wary by his experiences on the lower slopes, Hannibal accepted their gifts of hostages and livestock and followed their guides, but he kept his army close together, sending the cavalry, elephants, and baggage train to the vanguard, while he himself brought up the rear with his heavy infantry. His precautions proved well-founded. Two days after his meeting with the Gallic elders, a host of warriors fell upon the rear of his column while it was struggling through a narrow and precipitous gorge. Instead of a lightly defended baggage train they had expected, the Gauls found the pick of Hannibal's troops facing them, and a bloody conflict erupted. The sure-footed Gauls, leaping from their places of concealment, hurled missiles, rolled boulders, or dashed down among the more heavily armed Carthaginians, hacking as they went. Meanwhile, the cavalry and elephants repulsed a lighter attack in the front, but the situation in the rear grew so perilous 
that Hannibal's army was actually severed in two near nightfall by an attack on his flanks. After a sleepless night cut off from the vanguard of his army, Hannibal found to his relief next morning that the enemy had drawn off to their own homes in the darkness, allowing him to effect a junction with his forces. Nonetheless, his losses had been heavy, although, had he not taken any precautions, his descent on Rome might have ended in a cold alpine grave. Having tested the mettle of the invaders, the remaining Gallic tribes along the route contented themselves with sporadic raids, cutting off isolated groups and stragglers, and stealing baggage. The elephants especially proved valuable deterrence, for the natives, terrified by the appearance of these huge beasts, abstained from attacking any point in the column where they were present. Eight days later, the army reached the summit of the pass. Here, Hannibal halted for two days' rest. During this time, stragglers regained their units, and to the troops' astonishment, many pack animals deemed lost over precipices also found their way into the camp, having followed the army's trail, burdens and all. Yet despite this, the rest gave little encouragement to the soldiers, for now snow began to fall in earnest. With the men's spirits at a low ebb, Hannibal pointed to the valleys of Italy, dimly visible in the far distance, exclaiming, My men, you are at this moment passing the protective barrier of Italy. Nay more, you are walking over the very walls of Rome. Henceforward, all will be easy going, no more hills to climb. After a fight or two, you will have the capital of Italy, the citadel of Rome, in the hollow of your hands. Although there were no more hills to climb, the descent proved even more dangerous than the climb had been. Though shorter in distance, the road was correspondingly steeper, and now, coated in slush from newly fallen snow, threatened death to any who lost his footing. It was impossible for a man to keep his feet, says Livy. The least stumble meant a fall, and a fall aside, so that there was indescribable confusion men and beasts stumbling and slipping on top of each other. After several days of this misery, the Carthaginians came to the worst obstacle yet. A heavy landslide had carried away an entire section of the mountain, rendering the road into a nearly thousand-foot drop so that even the lightly-armed troops could not find a way, and to the weary soldier's eye, the journey was over. An initial detour over the neighboring slopes began ill. Although a fresh layer of snow presented little obstacle to the troops, once they had broken through the surface, they found an older, compacted layer of ice and snow beneath. Livy describes what followed. The result was a horrible struggle, the ice affording no foothold in any case, and least of all on a steep slope. When a man tried by hands or knees to get on his feet again, even those useless supports slipped from under him and let him down. There were no stumps or roots anywhere to afford a handhold to either foot or hand. In short, there was nothing for it but to roll and slither on the smooth ice and melting snow. Sometimes the mule's weight would drive their hooves through into the lower layer of old snow. They would fall, and once down, lash savagely out in their struggles to rise and break right through it, so that as often or not they were held as in a vice by a thick layer of hard ice. Rebuffed in his attempt to find an alternate road, Hannibal realized that now he would have to make his own way through solid rock. Whatever was to be done, 
It must also be done quickly, for the army's food and forage supplies had fallen so low that starvation threatened them within a few days' time. Thus, without delay, Hannibal set his weary men to work on an ingenious method of softening the forbidding stone. Fires were kindled near the base of the shelf, and once the rocks had been sufficiently heated, the men threw their rations of vinegar onto the surface to render it brittle. Following this, relay teams of Numidians working round the clock cut a zigzag path through the cliff, carving a winding road which, by the end of three days' labor, the horses, mules, and even elephants were able to descend. Having surmounted this last difficulty, Hannibal and his soldiers descended into the Po Valley. Here, instead of barren cliffs, freezing snow, and hostile tribes, he found a rich, hospitable landscape and emissaries waiting for him from the friendly Insubres who had invited the Carthaginians to come into their country. Turning the beasts loose to forage and the men to rest, Hannibal took stock of what remained of his force. The crossing had taken fifteen days. During that time, men had fallen off in droves. Most, it is true, were likely lost due to desertion. But Gallic swords, frostbite, hypothermia, starvation, malnutrition, and accident claimed numerous lives as well. Polybius reports that by the time Hannibal entered Italy, his army of 38,000 infantry and 8,000 cavalry with which he had crossed the Rhone had fallen to a mere 20,000 Libyan and Iberian footmen and 6,000 horsemen of various nationalities, an appalling loss rate of nearly 50%. Compared with the manpower at Rome's disposal, Polybius states that Roman Italy at the start of the Second Punic War contained over three-quarters of a million fighting men. Hannibal's victory over the Alps, heroic though it might have been, appeared to be Pyrrhic after all. Yet the army which remained with him, reduced though it was, had been honed by the crossing into the nucleus of what would become one of the finest armies in history. Men who stumbled out of the Alpine foothills resembling wild beasts, as Polybius puts it, and nearly collapsing from fatigue, hunger, and cold, would grow to be the dreaded Carthaginian veterans of Livy who bathed in Roman blood. If the Romans were not worried now, they soon would learn to be. Next time, we will cover Hannibal's first grappling with the Romans at the River Trebia. Until then, take care and read more history.